Welcome. You're about to listen to a teaching of the Foursquare Gospel Church, VGC District. At Foursquare, we believe in the transformation of communities through the multiplication of disciples, leaders, churches, and movements. May your hearts be blessed and transformed as you listen. I really pray, God, that the next one hour or so will be a blessing to you and to me. I, I put together some notes, which I'm sure you'll get. Um, I tried to compress together four trainings I've done in the last one month, which um, I did one with the Equite Church, both on neighborhood evangelism, and I did one with the Presbyterian Church, and uh, just did one. So we're trying to put this together so that we can pick some lessons together. And the Lord will bless us together in Jesus' name. Um, by the grace of God, we'll be looking at a few things on neighborhood evangelism and disciple making. In the time that we have, we'll be looking at a few things. One of them is understanding evangelism and our mandate. We'll also be looking at how do we prepare for an evangelism outreach, especially in a neighborhood like ours or any other neighborhood. We're looking at preparing for an outreach. We'll be highlighting prayer as a primary tool um, I, when I walked in and I saw prayer is the key that unlocks any door, I say amen to that, especially evangelism doors. We'll be looking at preaching that produces results. We'll be looking at preserving the fruits of evangelism and then some practical challenges and the questions. Of course, it looks a bit bulky for one hour, but don't be worried. I don't think there's any one of us here or online who is completely a novice to this issue of evangelism, especially if you've been part of this church or any Foursquare church for that matter. So I'm not coming from the viewpoint of a guru to train people who don't know anything. I'm, I'm making a very dangerous assumption that at least you have some basic, you are involved in evangelism. Some of you here have led evangelism and mission teams ever before I became a, the kind of person I am today. So you have some residual knowledge. Some of you have been involved in making disciples uh, very exciting ways, so it's not completely new. So what I plan to do is just bring out some things that for me, over the years, have been very useful and I've found very fruitful. Some fruitful practices that I have found quite helpful as I seek to bring people to Christ and establish them. I am very passionate about evangelism and discipleship, both from a personal experience point of view. I've told you my story how God found me one night while I was in the A-level school, and God used your pastor, Pastor Peter, to give me my spiritual pediatrics. But in over one year, I suffered abandonment. Nobody really followed me up. And I really struggled until God brought a young medical student my way, Dr. Stephen Daniel, 
who again began to give me my teeth. And I have vowed that nobody must go through what I went through for that one year. And then when I remember that I am the first Christian in my entire generation, I wonder whatever happened that brought that misfortune to my family. And I vow that there must never be anybody who will suffer loss of the gospel the way I did. So from that point of view uh, comes my commitment. So we will be looking at some of those things. Um, I, I have some slide there, but so we want to begin with the basic. I have found out that when it comes to evangelism at any level, you know, there is all kinds of misconception as to what exactly evangelism is and what exactly our role and mandate in evangelism is. And because a lot of people don't really get that, they get jittery. Evangelism becomes one dreaded word. But when I understood what exactly evangelism is and what my role in it is, I look forward to it. The frustrations, as it were, gave way. So you'll be looking at that. Evangelism was defined by Dr. B. Bright, the founder of the Campus Crusade for Christ or Great Commission Movement. And he described it this way. And Billy Graham used this description so well over the years. Sharing Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit and leaving the results to God. Simple but potent. Sharing Christ. You can't share what you don't have. You can't share what you don't own. It supposes that you yourself must have experienced Christ. And that you have so enjoyed him that you are willing to share him. It's not about sharing my church or my denomination or not even my experience of Christ, sharing Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. And that power of the Holy Spirit does not mean being melodramatic. The power of the Holy Spirit, if you look at Acts 2, time will fail me, but when Pentecost came, when Jesus said in Acts 1, you shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. I was interested in finding out what happened to this disciple. First, you notice in Acts 2, they were together in unity. And there's a correlationship between the ability of any two Christians or a church like this to live in unity and, and the world to believe us. Jesus said in John 17 that they may be one so that the world will believe. Unity, not uniformity, not that we must do as we be in everything, but that essentially we stand on Christ as the only savior, the simple four square creed, and that we believe that anybody to have a relationship with Christ, with God, he must pass through Christ, and that the gospel is the power of God for salvation, and there is no way anybody can believe in a Christ they have not heard of, and they can't hear without a preacher, and they can't preach unless they are sent. I believe that this is one effort by this local church to send us out, equip us, build capacity, challenge us, release us. So the church must be constantly doing that. And we agree on that. 
And then we agree that it is about Christ. The, we saw unity. We saw boldness. Peter demonstrated boldness. We saw clarity. The gospel was historically explained and logically put together to demonstrate that Christ is the Messiah accepted by God by his death and resurrection. And the impact of that on the congregation that I had was, was massive. They were cut to the heart. And many believed that day. And the Bible said the company of them that believed were put together in a discipleship program. They were established and they were brought into the fellowship. So we see that the Holy Spirit power is not just about the melodrama. It's about the boldness, the wisdom, the ability to preach the word of God with results. Later on, you could see the power of the Holy Spirit raising the dead, healing the lamb, opening blind eyes, all that. We saw the wisdom of Stephen contending in apologetic way with philosophers. Paul also demonstrated that later, ability to think soundly and think rationally and explain the gospel even to the most learned of people by the power of the Holy Spirit, wisdom. All that including the power of the Holy Spirit. The simplicity of faith in the, the wisdom of God in Christ. So we see that sharing Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit and leaving the result to God, that takes faith. We live in a world that celebrates and forces results where they don't exist. But understand that in evangelism, we are not responsible for the results. We are responsible for the sharing. And we need to trust God for results, as we see later. And I added my word to that, the process of sharing the good news. It's a process. Very important we understand it's a process, not an event. It's not a one-time, one-moment thing. Anytime you share the gospel with somebody and he responds by giving his or her life to Christ, you can be sure God had used somebody else to do a work before you came. That takes humility. It takes also acknowledging the efforts of others. The process of sharing the good news of the love of God and his serving grace in Christ, Jesus Christ, with people in such a way and language that they understand it sufficiently to make an intelligent decision. The emphasis there for me is three. One, it's a process. You see what that process is. First Corinthians 3, 6 to 9. Paul explained the process. Sharing the gospel with people. I had a friend, um, Peter knows that friend very well, late Gabriel. I mean, she did, should know Gabriel in NAB. He was such an orthodox Christian, very fundamentalist. So we went out one day in a village setting to preach the gospel. He was teaching in a rural community. I went to visit him and we decided, look, let's go out and do evangelism. So we got to this house. We didn't meet anybody. The second house, there was also nobody. Then we saw some goats. And Gabriel literally said, we should preach to those goats. And I said to him, why? He said, the Bible said, preach to every creature. And I said, 
I, I said, Gabe, I think the Bible meant human creature, not animals. They don't have a soul. He said, well, boy, the Bible said creature. They didn't distinguish it. And he actually stood there murmuring some things to goats. I saw that one look like a madman. I walked away to go and use myself. <laughs> but you know, <laughs> so he, so the emphasis there is as people. Amen. <laughs> That's why I emphasize people. And the other emphasis there is that communication must be clear. Too often we speak too much of Christianese. You know, even the word born again, if Nicodemus didn't understand it as a bishop, what makes you think some ordinary folks will understand born again? We need to break it down. And the idea is for them to understand enough to make their decision, not a decision we forced. And their decision can be no, or not now. Of course, you have them understand the implication of that no, and the implication of putting it off. So they make a decision. In other words, we must get to a point where appeal for a verdict. We get people to make a decision. Don't just go on in the wrong rigmarole argument, endless argument. Now, do you, do you are you interested in listening? If it's, that's where you start. If you say, I'm not interested in listening, say, don't say you must listen in Jesus' name by fire, by force. No, you don't force listening. You don't force acceptance. You don't force repentance. It's like giving, you want a child, so at one month you force the baby out. The issue that you have, you need to put you in an incubator. One of the challenges we face as a church is that too many of the converts we have are premature babies. So our churches are fast becoming incubators. So that's key. Um, and then if you look at the Bible description of evangelism, it does not give the impression that evangelism is an event. It's not a quick fix like we try to make it. If you read Matthew 13, the parable of the sower, Jesus spoke of evangelism as a sower went out to sow seed. Farming is a process. I'm a consummate, passionate farmer. And I understand that farming is a whole process. I just finished harvesting a variety of beans. They call it 40-day beans. Once you plant it, in the next 40 days, it's ready. We just harvested and we planted another one, waiting for 40 days. But it's genetically modulated. Normally, you can't force beans to mature in 40 days, but this one has gone through a process at IITM. So it can be controlled. Otherwise, you plant the seed, you wait for the rain, you just wait for that thing to grow and pick up by itself. So it's farming. And the Bible speaks of different soil types, which represent different hearts, who receive the seed and respond differently. I was amazed that even the good soil didn't produce the equally. Even the seed that fell on the good soil, some produced 30% fold, 60 fold, 100 fold on the good soil. So we shouldn't expect equal response from people, not even from twins. Because we are not all in control. There are circumstances outside us 
that control how they see it. But the most important thing, when Jesus was explaining that parable, he emphasized that the seed is the word. How often do we think the seed is giving food to people, giving clothes to people? Those are good. The good works are part of it, but they are not the seed. Any evangelism effort in a neighborhood that makes the neighborhood and does good welfare program, but that same put the gospel has failed. I mean, one of the biggest challenges we face in mission is the role of mercy work, community development. And sometimes it is counterproductive. Have you heard of the rice Christians in Thailand? When the missionaries from the US first went to Thailand, they would go with bags of rice, loads of rice. The day they will bring in rice, the church will be full. The day they don't bring rice, there's nobody. That's where the concept of rice Christian came. I recall one of my first interesting experience as a capital missionary was we sent this young friend and a couple team to somewhere in KB State. And they got there. We knew that place was a Muslim settlement. Within two weeks, they came back with reports of 30 something, a church that just grew to 30 something. It was exciting, but also surprising. So when we got there, we found out that what they do was that some partners of the ministry in Kaduna visited them with a lot of clothes, used clothes. And when the used clothes arrived, all the young men in the village took to church. The next time they saw a vehicle coming with used clothes, but they had invited people from neighboring villages. The church was full. So we now said, okay, can we try next week without clothes? And when the guys came and there was no clothes, they made noise and walked away. So we understood that they were not coming for Christ, but for clothes. And if you don't take time, the use of what seemed to be the good will be counterproductive. Let's remember that Christ said, the seed is the word. Amen. The seed is the word. Whatever else we do, the label in evangelism is that the seed of the word will be sown. Either through a track or a theme or what, preaching or just one-on-one, -on -one, or whichever way we display, the word must be sown. In Matthew 4.19, Jesus spoke of evangelism as fishing. Follow me, I will make you fishers of me. Again, it's a process. You have to locate the river. A good fisherman, when he sets out from home, you decide what kind of fish do I want today. Is it just the one I want to eat? or the one I want to go to the market with. If it's just to eat, you just go and pick any of those things, tilapia, those small ones. But if you want to go and make money, you look for the fish that can get to the market. And you will find out that you need to find the right water for the right, that kind of a fish. So it's a process. And then it talks about evangelism as an investment. A man who finds a treasure. So evangelism is not just, it's a treasure hunt and it is warfare. So it's a process. First Corinthians 3, 6 to 9, 
talk about the process of sowing, the process of watering. Paul said, I planted, Apollos watered, God gave the increase, somebody harvested. And he said, none of us is as good as our efforts are, the most critical thing is God who caused the growth. So it's a partnership with God. Evangelism is a partnership, not just with one another, but principally with God. And that's why we get back to the place of prayer, that we trust the Lord to cause growth in the seed that we plant in evangelism. Very important that we partner with God in this process. And so, so we look at our role. Our role is in the area of prayer, the area of proclaiming, the area of affirming by our lives, trusting God for growth, and bringing the harvest. So, we try to look at evangelism as described in the Bible and as a process. And then we look at our mandate. Our mandate. As we look at the, the process, remember that in that first Corinthians 3, 6 to 9, Paul suggests that different stages of this process can be accomplished by different instruments. And each one of us received our reward according to what we've done in the process. So I always say that there is no failure in evangelism. There's no failure. It's a matter of doing your part in the process and leaving the rest to God. Your part can be planting. And Mark 4 talks about the kingdom of God being like a man who went to plant a seed. And then he went back and slept. He went back and slept. And the seed grew by itself. First the shoot, then the corn. You know, so the planting was diligently done by this man. And he was so confident that God is able to grow that seed without his effort. He went back to sleep. The watching has to do with praying for people who have listened or have made commitment. And that is where our good works come in. That is where our material support, that's where our visitation and encouragement, that is where the welfare things we do come into evangelism. They come as a watering process. I can't forget this experience I had with this woman from Benin. I entered a Degbe. I was going to Benin for a meeting. And this woman at Yaba bus stopped them, who went out into the market to buy some stuff. She had loaded a Degbe line with her material. And then as she went out, somebody snatched her wallet. Meanwhile, they were waiting for her. And everybody in the bus was angry. Why is she waiting for? Go and leave her. And I stood there in her defense. So what if something went wrong? And she came back and truly they had stolen her purse and her money. 
So I told her to just come and enter. I will pay for her. And I paid for her and her goods. And that became a relationship that by the time we got to Benin, she had rededicated her life to Christ. And her story touched me because her house was a house fellowship center for a very big Pentecostal church. And then the husband ran away with one of the women that was coming to the house fellowship. And she vowed she would never step into church again, if this is what church is about. But that day, when she saw a Christian do good to her in the name of the Lord, she rededicated her life to Christ. Amen. She said, women leader in that same church in Benin. Well, you know, she saw a watering of her soul by a good act of a Christian. So watering includes doing good works to people and visiting, praying, and encouraging. And God grows the seed. And so let's continue as our time is going, just for us to understand again what evangelism is, the nature of evangelism as a process, as uh, not an event, and knowing that we play our part, God plays his part. And um, let's also look at the fact that our call to evangelism is not just an ecclesiastical call for a few people who finish from Bible school or life or any capro school or mission or any training like this. It's a calling that comes with our call to Christ. Very important that we understand that. Because a lot of believers and a lot of church members believe that, you know, it's for some special people. And yes, there's a gifting that comes with being an evangelist. But even if you don't have the gifting, you are called to do the work. It's not just for the gifted. It's a function of our being called into Christ. And I need this to be clear because when Jesus called us in Matthew 4, 9, he said, follow me, I will make you fishers of men. Two sides of the same call. Follow me. So it's a product of our discipleship. And as you do, I will make you to be fishing for men. No man can make you a fisher of men. No school of missions or evangelism can make you. It will be amazed, it will be amazing you're not even all the missionaries I know fish for men. It's a product of your personal discipleship with Christ. He is the one that built an innate capacity desire. He works in us to will and to do by his spirit. You see, evangelism is an effervescence of your love for God. And it is only the Holy Spirit that shared love for God abroad in your heart. Nobody can do that for you. Nobody can make you love God outside the Holy Spirit. So it's a product of your personal work with God. Yes, men can encourage you by the example, instruct you by precept like we are doing, but ultimately, it's Christ as you follow him that makes you a fisher of men. He said in Mark 3.13, he chose the twelve to be with him, communion, that he might send them to preach and to heal. So going out to preach and heal is a result of being with him, communion with him. There are two ways, three ways, three 
ways I get to know that I'm cooling down spiritually for me. One is when I'm becoming more self-conscious. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about me. How does this thing affect me? What that person did or say? I'm beginning to think of me, me, me. I know that it's a problem because there are two words that have I in the middle. Sin and pride. Check. Those two words. I is exactly at the center of them. Pride, sin. Another way is when I'm becoming less loving, I'm clinging to things, giving, helping is becoming a challenge for me. But another way is when I'm losing my spiritual eyesight. I'm beginning to look at people more as pe people I can use than people I can help to know Christ. When my passion for the lost is waning, I know that my following of Jesus is drifting. That's what I used to measure. Because once I'm following the Lord as a person, he makes me very conscious of my responsibility to be a bridge bringing people to him. I don't know for you how you know, but for me, that's where I know. John 15, abide in me, bear fruit. Abide. Abide. That word abide, I used to think it means go and stay where Jesus is. Until the Lord helped me to understand that abide is not just about staying with somebody. Abide, the, that word really means obey. When you say abide by the traffic rules, abide by COVID protocols, they are not saying stay with the protocols or write a protocol on the sheet of paper and sit on them. What they are saying, obey them. So Jesus said, if you abide in me, and my word abide in you, if you take in my word and follow and obey, you'll be fruitful. You'll be fruitful. Luke 1, 74, he delivered us that we may deliver others. So it's two sides of the same coin. If ever Jesus delivered you, it falls upon you as a responsibility to be used to deliver others. If you ever came to abide with Christ, one evidence that you bear fruit, the fruit of character, the fruit of bringing others to abide. Inherent in our calling as Christians, we need to understand that. And I won't go into too much into the other aspect. I have shared this here several times, that as a Christian, there are three commitments that come with being a Christian. Whether as an individual, as a church, one commitment is a commitment to worship God, upreach, to minister to God in prayer and in worship. See, prayer is not just a long fork we use to take things from God's dining table. Prayer actually is a tool in us that God uses to build his kingdom on earth. The beneficiary of real prayer is God, not us. He's omnipotent, omniscience. He can do anything, anyhow, anywhere, but he has chosen by his redemptive plan to work only in answer to somebody's prayer. So whatever God will do on earth, he prompts somebody to pray it. I mean, I was amazed that in Ezekiel 32, God didn't want to destroy these people. He said, I didn't want to destroy them. I was looking for a man to stand in a gap. And the question is, God, you are the one that is angry with the people. 
You are the one that can decide to stop. Why do you need me to pray you to stop? That's just the way he designed redemption. In Matthew 9, the harvest is plenty, the laborers are few. Pray the Lord of the harvest to send laborers. Excuse me. You are the Lord of the harvest. You are the head of the church. The laborers are in your hand. The fields belong to you. Why can't you just trust people? Why must I pray? That's the way he designed it. So anytime God prompts you to pray, whether it's for an individual or Nigeria or some as a, your work situation or your pastor or anybody for that matter, don't take it as a joke because it is an invitation for you to bring God's hand upon that person or that situation. It's always that. That's why I don't joke anymore. I have missed I have seen things happen in people's lives that left me guilty because God prompted me to pray and I just took it out. No, I mean, I will do it another time. It's not important. And something happened and God reminded me, you see, this is what I was trying to do and you didn't respond in prayer. So let's understand that we minister to God. When we pray, we are actually ministering to God. We are meeting a need in the heart of God when we pray. When we worship him, he that offereth praise glorifies me. He that offereth praise glorifies God. And to him that orders his conversation aright. So, you know, there's something that praising God does. It's like raising a platform. Wherever the president of any country or the governor is going in Lagos, there's a podium that bears the insigma or the seal of the office of the governor or the office of the president. He has to stand behind it to speak. Even if the president of America is speaking on a loan, they bring it. If he's traveling, they carry it in a plane. Praise is like that. Praise is God's platform that we raise for him to stand and be God in a situation. That's our ministry to God. He loves praise. He habits the praises of his people. The second calling we have is to love one another. Fellowship, love, share, care. It's an intrinsic call. We are called into fellowship. The idea of a local church like VGC Foursquare is not just to be a group of people God gives work, 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 work. We're also to be a group of people that God gave to one another, to love, share, care. I think I have hung around this church long enough to appreciate that aspect in this church, that it's really being woven together into a family. Amen. Don't take that for granted. It has a great implication, even on our evangelism mandate. So the need of one is the need of all. The pain of one is the pain of all. The joy of one is the joy of all. No jealousy. One of our children graduate, our child has graduated. Even if you don't have a child, you don't say, mm, God, why on others you are passing? Do not pass me by. You rejoice with those who rejoice. You mourn with those who mourn. And the world knows we are a family. We owe one another that. But the third one is outreach. As we enjoy God in worship and prayer, we enjoy one another in fellowship, loving, sharing, caring. We remember that we owe those who are not part of that fellowship a gift of sharing the same love with them. 
And God will not be satisfied if we just became a good welfare group as a church without being a rescue team. We have to be a welfare group, yes, but welfare will be better served in heaven if we all get there. The reason he left us here is to be his rescue team. So that element of being a rescue team supersedes even the joy and excitement of fellowship. That was why when the early church began, fellowship was so sweet. Somebody sold a house, you bring the money to the apostles to share. Somebody doesn't have school fees, there's somebody there to supply. Who wants to leave that kind of fellowship? For missions and rescue work to happen, God had to scatter that fellowship by persecution. That's how critical it was to God that we don't just celebrate one another, but we celebrate the rescue, the lost sheep coming home. And so we have that as a commitment. And it is expressed at an individual level in witnessing, individually sharing our stories of how we met the Lord or the Lord met us. It is expressed together to in how we preach the gospel, anyhow we preach it. It's also expressed in how we break new ground, pioneer evangelism in places where it has not happened. And as, as weird as it might sound to you, there are still places near us here that evangelism need to be pioneered. This Ibejuleki area still has pockets of places. From here to Ijebude, pockets of villages. Around us, in fact, I live in Lake Phase 1. I do a prayer walk towards the lagoon. You'll be amazed the slums camps. In this, you go there in the night, you see expensive Lexus Jeep, expensive Mercedes Jeep. You see young UP boys. They come there and they're buying cocaine. And the people selling them this cocaine are small children. And they are picking girls from there. A lot of the core girls that you see on the streets of Lakey come from those slums. I have walked with a church to go on an outreach there. And it's amazing to find that in those slums, there are beautiful children of God who love God. And there are people who have never had the gospel. So they are everywhere. But they are not just in the creeks. Friends, some of the worst sinners we have in Nigeria are in Banana Island. Sometimes it's a way we look at this job just for the underprivileged and find out that they are sophisticated sinners who with all the technology around them have not really had the gospel. I recall a friend of mine was being sent over chairman of his bank and invited me and said, look, Sam, all this, my friend, I want you to come and preach. I don't preach more than 10 minutes. I got there. And I saw in that hall, who is who in this country? The billionaires, the millionaires, the, the pioneers, everybody was there. The pastors, the imams. Dangote was there. Jimovia was there. Um, what is his name? Sanusi was there. And these people sat there. And I asked God, Lord, if I'm to preach one message that will sow a seed, what do I preach? And guess what I chose? Zacchaeus. <laughs> I preach on Zacchaeus. 
Because Zacchaeus was a very rich man, but he fell short. Because all have seen and fallen what? Short. Once you see a short man, sin is not far from him. <laughs> Righteousness exalt. It makes you taller. Have you? <laughs> I know Jimovia is very short. And so later he called at the door. You just brought this boy to be insulting. Is that because I'm sure they say I'm a sinner? No, but it wasn't so. But the point was that Zacchaeus, with all the money, had a need that only Jesus could meet. And he knew that if he didn't catch Jesus that day, do you remember that on that trip, Jesus never came back? That's when he headed to the cross. So there was an urgency about it. But he had a problem. The crowd around Jesus are often the reason why some of these people miss Jesus. The crowd around Jesus was why the woman with the issue of blood almost lost her healing. The crowd around Jesus was almost why the blind Bartimaeus could not receive healing. The crowd around Jesus stopped the children from being blessed. The crowd around Jesus wouldn't let Zacchaeus go near. So he climbed a tree. And so I told them in that meeting, if you think, all pastors and preachers are business people. Aliko Dangote, have you ever invested in a church? Because whatever Dangote has not invested in doesn't have money, have you? Okay, so they laughed about it, but the point I was making was, inside that crowd, Zacchaeus found a tree of righteousness to climb. If you are desperate enough, not every believer is fake. They are good ones. Amen. So what I'm saying is that that crowd also is a crowd for us to reach, and God didn't make mistake raising us as an urban church in this urban area, that every strata of society must be reached with this gospel. Though when we talk about pockets of places without the gospel, don't just let us think of the suburbs. Don't just let us think of the, the poor. The rich also cry for salvation. I've had the privilege of leading Rich men in this Lagos to Christ. I pastored some of them for years. Brother, what, they, what you have in Christ that you don't value is all they are looking for. All they are looking for. And some of them tell me that, look, the reason they don't like going to some of these big churches is that they'll make them poster boys. And that's, they just want to find God. The Lord will open our eyes in Jesus' name. A witnessing, evangelism, missions. But let me know, that's not where I'm going to. That's just the background. We're looking at how do we effectively reach our neighborhood? And I'm glad that it's question and answer session. So let me speed up a little bit. The first thing is to prepare. Prepare. If you are to write down it in prepare. It's very important that we prepare. Um, in Luke 14, you know the story. Jesus spoke about which of you wanting to build a house won't sit down and count the cost. But then he talked about which king going to war will not first do some reconnaissance and some military intelligent work. You check the strength of the enemy. You check the strength of your own army. You check whether with 100 you can go against their 200 or you need more. So whether you are choosing a road in VGC, or an area of VGC, or Ikota, or 
maybe just targeting one family. There's need for preparation. And I call that, we call that spiritual mapping. First, pray God to direct you. When Jesus sent a disciple in Matthew 10, he told them where to go. Do not go here, do not go here, go here. It's important that God leads us because he knows who is ready for sowing. He knows who is ready for watering. He knows who is ready for harvest. So planning for an outreach is a very prayerful thing. And then, not only do we pray for God to direct us where to go, we do a prayer mapping. We pray around it, but we also find out some basic facts. Who lives there? If you want to go to this next house, okay, maybe they are Catholics. And if they are Catholics, you should know strongholds they already have. And the Bible says the weapons of our welfare are not Canada. They are mighty through God for pulling down what? Strongholds. Already you know that strongholds are in the mind. Strongholds are thoughts and imagination that people hold that fight against the knowledge of God. If they're a Muslim family, if you don't know about Islam, ask people who know, read, you know strongholds. If they're Jehovah Witnesses, you know strongholds. If they even attend any of these other, they're Indians or Hindus, you should have an idea of the stronghold. Now, it's not to put you away. It's to prepare you in prayer. Hallelujah. In my neighborhood that I live, there's one of the most influential families. Uh, so one of those days I drop, I drop a gospel message on the platform, replying that, look, I'm a kanka. Uh-huh. A kanka. So I had to go and read again about a kanka. And so on one of those days I was walking. God made it that he too was walking. So I joined the chariot. So I asked him, you mentioned about it. What, what, what do you believe as a kanka? I listened to him. He is basically about reincarnation. He's just an Eastern religious. So I asked him, so in a kanka, at what stage do you say you are saved? He couldn't answer that question. So I said, if you went to Reddington Hospital, Evercare, the new hospital in Lakey, and you went to be treated of goiter or or any treatment. You should be able to know when the treatment is over, Abby. <laughs> so at what stage does a canker bring salvation? So I told him at what stage Christ brings salvation. I didn't force him to get, but at least he had. Amen. So you need to if it's a community, what do they do? Are they traders? If they are traders, you should know that going there sometime won't help you. The timing also helps. Are they literate or illiterate? If they are illiterate, showing a Jesus film in English won't help you. Some lang- in fact, sometimes you need to speak. I was in the East, Abakalike, two weeks ago, at a conference of a church denomination, Presbyterian Church. I found out that 90% of the people don't understand no language. So I preached in broken English throughout. And I enjoyed it because I could connect with the old women. Sometimes it helps you choose the language. It helps you ch- select the materials. When you do the map, it helps you know what to pray. 
It helps you design strategy. So it's very important that we prayerfully select an area, map it out, you know, find out who lives there, their church or religious affinity, their literacy and exposure level. That was why God demanded Moses in number 13 to send spies first to the land. That was why Paul at Athens in Acts 17, he looks around and realizes that these people are very religious, but they don't know the names of their God. In fact, their most important God was labeled unknown God. And he hatched on that. That was why if you read Jesus in Matthew 9, told the disciples, he described the people. He saw them helpless, harassed, scattered, sheep without shepherd. That was the perfect description of the community he was calling their attention to. So that helped you to know the response. So prepare. You prepare physically, spiritually. If you prepare materials in accordance with us. So research is very key in reaching your neighborhood. The second thing, as I try and get to a point you can ask your question, is prayer. Psalm 126, he who goes out weeping, verse 6, he who goes out weeping, bearing precious seed, shall no doubt come back rejoicing, bringing in the shield. Amen? They say weeping. Not literally weeping, but a burden you carry that helps bring shields in. Evangelism is not just a question of doing a duty. It must flow out of a burden. One of the things you pray for God, give us a burden for these people. Give us genuine love for them. Give us, let them see that this evangelism we are doing is not just a membership drive, but it's something we are doing because we love them. Prayer. Also, because evangelism is spiritual warfare, Luke eleven twenty one. When a nobleman keeps his loot, when a strong man keeps his loot, it's safe until it's stronger than him. And whenever you go for evangelism, you are trying to take a loot from the devil. There has to be an area bombardment. In conventional war. The Air Force is it. The, he who has the best Air Force gains advantage on ground. Prayer is the Air Force. We fire from the air. We take charge. Ephesians 6 says, even though we live in the flesh, we are not wrestling with flesh and blood. We are wrestling with spiritual wickedness in high places. Yes, the gospel can be intellectually argued, but it's not just an intellectual engagement. It's a spiritual engagement. The Bible says, if this gospel be hid, is hid from those who are perishing. Second Corinthians 4, 3, 4. The God of this world has blinded them. The Bible also tells us that the weapons of our welfare are not carnal. They are mighty through God. That's why Paul said, when I come to preach, I'm not just coming with words of human wisdom. I'm not just coming with philosophies. It can excite you, but your faith will lie in man's wisdom, not in God's power. And so we pray through from the information we get. We pray through. You see, 
Psalm 2, 8 said, ask of me, I will give you nations. We get people from God. Every good gift comes from above. In John 3, 27, John said, man can have nothing except be given from above, even souls. So in prayer, we are asking God, if you know names, and sometimes it's good to, if you do a survey, it's good to know the influential people of that area, the Bale or the, the, pres the president of the resident association. I mean, I have one in my area, he's, he's Kaido Tichoju. I live on his street. He was the president of our resident association. Hey, you don't want to follow the quarters that come on that platform. So I began to pick them out. Himself and one Hijia Caliphate and one uh, captain, somebody, I don't want to call their name. I know the names of the guys that think they are the guys. So I pray for them. So anytime I go for that, I attend that resident association, I'm tending with an agenda. The agenda is to see their faces and get to meet them and confront them in love with the gospel. And so that's what took me to the resident association. When I was in South Africa, I lived on a street that only white people lived. Were only three black people on the whole street, one Congolese, one Nigerian professor, and this Nigerian missionary. The dogs in that area are trained to bark at black people. So don't even go near their houses. I used to wonder why when I'm walking, the white people are walking, no dog. As I just pass, you hear all kinds of cries. Until one old man told me, friend, don't be angry. No, under Pata, we used to fear that the black people would come and raid us. So we train our dog to smell blackness. So how do you reach out to that kind of community where there are such terrible laws on trespass? If your child boy drop in your neighbor's compound, you can't enter and take it. They can call police, you're in jail. Until God gave me an idea. There was a community association, so I joined. And I joined the, 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 the sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. I joined... I joined a patrol. My light is on. I'm the light of the world. That's what I'm <laughs> Sorry, just a minute. I didn't know that my phone was on. I will put it all right now. And we'll get to ask our question. All right. So, the Lord just led me. This same white old man told me, you live in this community? I say yes. Why don't you come to our community meeting? I said, I didn't know there was one. No, there's one at the end of the month. I went to that meeting. There were about 180 people the first meeting. One black girl, one black man, one Chinese. All the rest were Africans. And they were speaking in Africans. So at the end of the day, say we should introduce ourselves. And the lady leading, I sensed in my spirit she was a Christian. John know she was a pastor's wife. She was a leader. So she said, oh, you don't speak African. So she gave an order from that day, everybody must speak in English. And whenever they meet, they leave five minutes, no matter what an African meeting is about, even if it's about drinking, the first five minutes will be dedicated to devotion. So they say, okay, Pastor Sam, can you lead us in devotion next meeting? Ha, brother, that was God's opening. The devotion is no more than 10 minutes. So I preached seven minutes on who is your neighbor. At the end of that meeting, God opened a door in that community in a way that only God could have done. 
In fact, at a one meeting, they were nominating candidate for counselorship. They nominated me before they realized I was not a South African resident. <laughs> but God used that. So sometimes, neighborhood where you are, being part of the association, being part of it, open doors for you that nothing else could open. That's what I mean. And then you are able to know who are the opinion leaders and you are able to pray for them. Prayer is key. God gives you people. We pray for power and boldness to preach. I'm almost there before the question. So when we have prayed and God has led us to pick an area, we've done the research, prepared, prayed, what do we do? What do we do? In Matthew 10, Jesus said, go. When you go, preach the gospel and then heal and do all those other things. And then again in Mark 16, say, go and preach the gospel. So preaching is key and central to reaching a neighborhood. Preaching. Whether we use open air crusade, small group outreach, one-on-one, -on -one, we preach through the internet or satellite or view. Preaching is key. Why? Why is it so key? No preaching, no salvation. Romans 10, the Bible says, you know, whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. God is the same. There's no difference between Jew and Greek. Hindu, Muslim, no different. If you call upon the name of the Lord, you'll be saved. But how can they call on one on whom they have not believed? How can they believe one on whom they have not heard? How can they hear without a preacher? How can they preach unless they are sent? So preaching is critical to salvation. The method of preaching may differ depending on the community. It could be let's go door to door, one on one, meet them one on one, or let's sit in your room and phone the person. I do that a lot in my lake because uh, this social distancing time, some we chat on WhatsApp, some and when I've developed a relationship, I call. Sometimes early morning, I say, ah, Mr. What he told you? Are you going to church today? He said, ah, I'll go and do private mass at my reverend father's place. I said, ah, there's no private salvation. No. Jesus was hung on the cross openly. If you want to be saved, you have to express open faith. This private faith, you get as it be. We joke about it, but sometimes it's that. So the Lord will help us to find a way to preach. By all means, Peter preached at Pentecost. He preached, and you can see the sermon. You see, he preached the gospel, and the content everywhere I read in the Bible are Jesus, his death, resurrection, and why he died and rose again. Very important. The historical, the two, faith in him, repentance, believing, and then salvation. We are no longer preaching repentance. You see, we are helping people to become Christian by absorption. There are some people who are Christian today, they can't tell you a story of when they repented. I'm not talking about, oh, you must know the exact date you repented. No. You see me like this? Your pastor told you that my birthday is November 29, right? The truth is, I don't know the day I was born. When I went to primary school, they asked me the first day. I didn't know. I went, my father didn't know. 
He sent me to the grandmother, who is a family historian. He said, okay, when you were born, we were farming here, farming here, farming here. I knew the year. So I went back and told them, said, which month? I went back to my grandmother. I said, okay, when you were born, we were harvesting groundnut. Those days, no global warming. So dates were very exact. So we knew that it's in November, we harvest those groundnuts. So I went back in November. They said, which day? My friend wrote 29 June. So what did I write? 29 November. That's how I got my birthday. You can't say because I don't know when I was born, I'm not leaving. <laughs> it could have been any day, 12, 13, 14, 13 November, but I chose 29 because my friend wrote what? I was tired of going up and down to find out when I was born. So some people may not know exactly when they got born again. That's what I'm talking about. If they are living, they are alive, Abby. <laughs> but we must preach. The content is the gospel. And Paul says in Ephesians 6, pray for me that wisdom and boldness to clearly declare the mysteries of Christ. Christ is a mystery. Christ is a mystery. Salvation in Christ is a mystery. No theology degree may help you expound that mystery if the Holy Spirit doesn't help you. Honestly, you must be born again. Nicola, how do you mean? Should I go enter my mother's room and come out a second time? Mystery. Paul said there are three mysteries that God kept for that are now revealed. One, the mystery of the Lordship of Jesus overall. Two, the mystery of Greeks and Gentiles becoming one family in the church. It's a mystery. Three, the mystery of the dominion of the church. And in this last day, God's manifold wisdom through the church will be made known. Fourth, the mystery of Christ in you, the hope of glory. They are all mysteries. And part of the, the, the endowment of God by his spirit to us is the mystery of godliness. Manifested in the flesh, you read that mystery. It's a mystery, but the Holy Spirit gives us grace to explain it and people catch it. That's why we need the Holy Spirit. Say, tarry in Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. Amen. So preaching is key. And let me close by saying, um, after we have preached, and I want to say one key thing, take me to one slide. I want to go, 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 go. I will show you which slide I want to talk about. Okay, I will come to that, but go forward. Go forward, get back. Go forward. Go forward. No. Okay, don't worry. Do you have your notes? Page five, sorry. I don't, so that I will save time. You know, I want to explain a concept I put there. It actually starts from page four. Very key concept. Because we live in a modern world, postmodern world. And look at where I, I wrote, livable leads to believable leads to true by Sam Chan. According to Sam Chan, in his evangelism handbook, Evangelism in a Skeptical World, where those in the modern world used to employ the logic of truth, belief, praxis, the postmoderners are more interested in whether something is real than if it is true. What does that mean? In the modern world, we used to say, Jesus is Lord and Savior. This is true. So believe it. 
If you believe it, you see the manifestation. You'll be a new creature. So it's about, in our time, it's, this thing is true. Take it as truth. Believe it, and then you will see the result. That is how our world, our generation, believe things, especially the gospel. But this generation is different. In, in other words, in our day, believing is key to seeing. But in this generation, they have changed the praxis. Seeing is key to believing. So first, they have to see that the Christian life is livable. When they see that it is livable, they will believe it. Then it is true. The summary of what I'm saying is that if it works, then I will believe that it is true. So we have a generation that go for what works. So if they will ask you, how can you say TB Joshua is not true when thousands are going there? How do you say Muslims are not correct when billions are Muslim? So they go for what works. So we must move Christianity from the doctrinia to the living. Amen. And Jesus solved that problem in John 1, 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among men. If God is love, let them see love. If God is honest, let them see honesty. If God is kind, let them see kindness. Then when they see it, then they will believe it. And if they believe it, then it is true. That is the changing praxis of belief. Even as we preach, let's remember that the manifestation of this life is more critical to our generation than the correct doctrine. Whatever else I forgot to tell you is that, of course, discipleship making is about preserving the fruit. And I talk about John 15, 16. You did not choose me. I chose you that you go and bear fruit, and those fruits should abide. So evangelism requires follow-up. Acts 2 shows that after Peter preached, the company of those that believed came together. They met, shared bread, shared the word, shared fellowship from house to house. There must be a conserving of the fruit. And it's by meeting, the goal is to make disciples. Jesus didn't just say, go and preach and reach neighborhood. Make disciples. And disciples are made by teaching. Converts are made by preaching. Disciples are made by teaching. And so you read Acts 11. After the gospel, they had gone and preached the gospel, they, Paul, Barnabas took Paul there to Antioch. And for two weeks, he settled down teaching those converts. And the Bible says the disciples were first called Christian at Antioch. It was out of that teaching that disciples emerged. So teaching is key. After we have preached, people have made responses. Even those who didn't say, I believe in Christ, we still need to follow up. Sometimes somebody say, I will think about it. So you call, are you thought about it now? So where are you with the thought process? Somebody say, well, I'm too sick now. We follow up. Can I pray for you? How are you doing? So any response demands follow up, especially if they now say, I've received Christ. Remember that in teaching, what I use that has helped me is Hebrews 6. <laughs> Hebrews 6 is the basic syllable that I begin with. It's not the only thing, the other two's. 
But Hebrews 6 says, Paul says, look, don't let us go back to laying foundations. So there are foundations. Repentance from dead works. Faith towards God. Baptisms. The laying of hand. Eternal judgment. If you read those Hebrews 6, 1 and 2, those are the nursery elements. They are the foundation. Paul said we shouldn't continuously keep laying them, but the challenge in our day is that we are not even laying them. And every Christian today doesn't understand anything about repentance from dead works. Not repentance from sin. You've repented from sin to be a Christian, but there are dead works. Works of darkness, works of the old man. The Bible expects you to keep turning away from them. If you used to steal, don't steal. Work hard with your hand and help others. You know, in those days when I got born again, I think it was Peter Maddie that first sang that song. He used to like it. Things are different now. Something happened to me when I gave my life to Jesus. Things I love far less. You know, you knew that you are not the same. So somebody stand with a man who is not his wife or husband. God born again. And you are arguing about whether you should continue staying there. You haven't repented from dead works. The Lord will help us in Jesus' name. But you teach it. You don't force it. <laughs> then baptism. How many baptisms are in the Bible? No. There are three baptisms. Water baptism. Baptism in the Holy Spirit and baptism of suffering. We don't teach that one. It's there. Jesus said, to this you were called, not only to believe in me, but to do what? Suffer with me. This is baptism of suffering. Paul said that I may know him and all that he went through. I'm almost there. Time for questions. You can ask questions about that one. It's always attract the most questions. The teaching syllable is also 1 Peter 2.2, the sincere milk of the world. For young Christians, we give them milk. Now, nutritionists will tell you that milk is not cheap food. It's complete food reduced to its simplest form that even the baby tissues can absorb. And the Lord will help us to give you sincere milk in Jesus' name. And then the ultimate desire is for the saved to be churched. To bring them into the local church. He said, other sheep I have who are not of this fold, but they must be brought in. So bringing them into church is a key desire of God as we follow people. God bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. Practical challenges with evangelism. Our motive, very key. The love of God constrains us. We must be constrained by love. We don't preach out of jealousy or envy. Uh, it's about kingdom growth, not church growth. God must fill us afraid with the power and authority to go out and do it. Those are some of the practical challenges. What exactly is the gospel? The conflict that comes with it. The complacency. It's everybody's job, yet nobody's job. The language and cultural barrier that come with it. I don't want to go through the notes, but let's go back to back to one slide. I'm going to show you then stop. There are all kinds of issues. Go back. All right. Go back, please. Go back. 
back? Is it back or front? Go back one more. Let me see. Back? No, I think it's in front. Let me find it. Sorry. Okay. Uh, go back to slide 24. 26, 25. Okay. 20, uh -huh. Okay. Thank you. Go back, please. Uh -huh. It's very important we notice that 95% of mostly Christians have never led a soul to Christ. 99% have never discipled one person. So complacency is a key issue and a key challenge as we seek to reach our neighbors and other people for Christ, that God will shake us out of complacency in Jesus' name. Very important that the love of God constrains us to do it. I want to stop there and take questions. A lot of the things that you and your notes are things that you can sit down over by the grace of God. Amen. God bless you. I'm ready for questions when you are ready. Okay, if you, if you have a question, if you are on site, just indicate by a raise of hand. If you are online, you can type your request. Also use the digital raise hand. Um, can we appreciate our facilitator tonight? Okay, so if you are on site, indicate by raise of hand. If you are online, you can also use the digital raise hand or you type your question on the chat room and um, the media folks will read it out. Please make it um, short and straight to the point. No rigmarole so that we can optimize our time. Sister Buki. Maybe we'll take three, then... My question would bother on being an apostle in the marketplace. And would it be... I'm just trying to find a, 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 a bit, I mean, a balance between having an opportunity to reach out to people of other faith by employing them and working, they're working for you and trying to maintain your strong faith as a Christian organization by restricting the kind of people you bring in to work for you. I mean, you, you are a Christian organization and you want to maintain that standard. By the time you bring in other people, people of other faith, you are either seen as forcing your faith on them because you have certain rules that you abide with, or you insist, look, you cannot do that, so you don't come in. But we still want to reach out to people of other faith as an apostle in the marketplace. I don't know if you understand my question, sir. Okay. 
I run a business, right? And some Muslims come into my organization and they want to work. And uh, should I employ them because I want to uh, reach them or just discriminate against them because they are not in my church? What should I do? I guess that's the question you're asking. All right. <laughs> okay. Um, my response to that would be, again, your motive. Um, motive is very key. Uh, I came in from Abuja the other day. A brother developed a big estate near the airport and sold half of the estate to federal airport authority staff, immigration staff whose offices are nearby. And so then some uh, people in the defense live there. They're Muslims. And then the people, the resident table a request that they want land to build a mosque. All right? And so the question this brother is a four square pastor too. He's a developer. The question he asked me that should they allow them to build their mosque? I said, where you were taking their money? Where did you want them to go and worship? <laughs> it would be unfair not to give them a place after you took their money and sold houses to them. The mosque itself doesn't stop you from being a Christian and reaching out to them. In fact, it may even become more attractive. So for me, um, if I set up a business to sell computer chips, and the best people that make chips for me are Muslims, and my goal is to make good chips, I will not be quick not to employ them. I need a skill. Number two, sometimes, Giving them opportunity, knowing very well they are Muslims, you see, trusting them, finding a common ground gives you access. The first thing the devil tried to stop you to get near, Psalm 2, let us cut their bands asunder. Have you read that? The principalities and powers, when they meet and take a decision, Especially has to do with Muslim, Hindu, disorder. Don't let Christian come near. To have them near you is even a victory. They too will try to reach you, no doubt, but how confident are you of your own faith? Sometimes we are not confident of our faith, so we are afraid of any challenge. But if you are confident of your faith, and remember, like I said, the world becomes flesh and dwells among men. Let me answer you this way. There is only one effective provable way of reaching Muslim, love. There's no other person. 33,000 former Muslims who became Christian globally were interviewed. What, of, what influenced your coming to Christ? 78% the love a Christian showed them. An undeserving love a Christian showed them. 20 something, 20, maybe 20% dreams and visions. Very few became Christian, then some miracles, healing. But almost 80% in different countries came to one point, Christian. Uh, Brother George was telling on Sunday after we went for lunch at the Odegas Orchid. I think this church organized a one four square church, organized a medical outreach around the Woyaya area, one community. 
And George was there. George is one of our missionaries. So when they did the outreach, medical outreach, one of the people had eye problems. The team didn't have the medication there. They sent somebody to town to go and buy it for these Muslim guys. And so they were telling George, they were telling themselves in houses, this thing they told us about Christian is a lie. They say Christian hate over. Look at what they are doing for us. Huh? They didn't have the medicine. They went to buy for us. We don't see this love even among our people. This is a private discussion they were having. Brother, sister, that outreach was a success. If that is the only message that was passed across, and the Lord will help us in Jesus' name. So for me, the question is your motive. Do you want to create a Christian company with no contamination with other faith? Or you want to create a net where you can attract others in and reach out to them? Knowing very well that as you are trying to read them, they too are reaching you, but you'll be sure who's rich will reach. <laughs> okay, I think we can do it better if you, if you could write your questions on a piece of paper. If you like to put your name, fine, that's optional. And those, those um, participating online um, will prefer you do yours on the chat room. Uh, we can read it out and the facilitator will answer. But we can take one while the rest of us are writing down theirs uh, on pieces of paper. Any question? Just so that we don't have a long break. Okay, Pastor Rotimi. No copyright, only copy wrong. <laughs> They're there. <laughs> and the notes are out there, please. If you want more, send me an email. Any more? If the, quest if the questions are not coming, then we can take them just on the spot. Anyone online? Yeah. You are not satisfied with the... No problem. Yeah. I mean, for every organization, you look at um, uh, continuity or succession planning, mm. all right? Mm. And um, you know that you have a mandate being in the marketplace. Yeah. Okay, so the mandate is not for you to hand over to another person who mm. doesn't have the vision of the organization. Yeah. And then, so you also have to be intentional with the kind of people you bring in. Mm. And each time I remember a particular organization that started like that as a Christian organization, today it's been owned by a Muslim. And majority of the workers, they are Muslims. Yeah. And every time I think of that, I'm like, so should Christians be encouraged? Because if they come into your place and they are doing well, all right, and they are of, of other fields, you will not, as a Christian, deny them of promotion. Okay? And then eventually they become leaders. And then they're calling the shots. Maybe you eventually retire. I know so many organizations like that. Maybe they became, well, if they become PLC, that is another thing entirely. But still closed up, and then you allow people of different faith to come. And they are, as they are progressing their career, ultimately they want to become the leader. And that's not what you set out the business itself you set out to do we attended a program this morning and we're talking about business as a missionary okay and so you set up this business for a purpose 
And so you are looking at yourself, should you, this actually came out from there, should you not engage people that don't share your faith with you and they will not share the motive because this business is strictly meant to sponsor the work of the gospel. And then you bring in a Muslim who doesn't share that. Okay. Maybe not just even a Muslim, somebody, mm. maybe a witness or whatever that don't share your vision. So okay. you need to be careful. I, I get what you are saying. That's why I say your motive is issue. Now, I, I understand the concept of business emissions. But you see, the concept of business emissions is not to set up Christian groups. The concept of business emissions use business as a means to reach people. Do you understand what I'm saying? So most missionaries we send to Dubai don't go as missionaries. They go into Dubai. They register businesses. That's the only way they can stay there, in the free trade zone. They run business. But see, it gives them access to the people. Now, you can't go to Dubai and set up such a business that you won't employ a Dubai person. In fact, you can't even sponsor that business if you don't have a Dubai person sponsoring it. In Oman, we run a training center. You can't, as a foreigner, set up a school in the, area, in the Gulf. A local has to sponsor that school, has to be a proprietor, whether you like it or not. That's what business as mission is. It's not setting up a Christian company uh, just to fund business in mission as a concept is to use the instrumentality of business as a vehicle to carry missionaries where normal mission work cannot happen. But again, when he got to Nigeria, it took a new dimension. But having said that, the only institution that you need to preserve with Christian is the church. <laughs> After I say that, I've spoken at those seminar and I say, if your motive is set up a Christian-only company, because there are things they are doing that you think people of other faith, so that one is not for witness, it's for preservation of a faith. But I'm talking about if it's a platform to reach out, you may not be able to always uh, distinguish the skills. If I have a law firm that I want to pass on to my children so that when I die, they can continue to raise Christians, then I'll be careful not to bring a Muslim lawyer. But if I'm setting up a law firm that I can be a platform to reach Muslim Hindus, then if I find one coming in, I know that I have a customer. So that is the difference. I get back to what is your motive. Thank you. Any more? Anyone online? Okay, we have a question online, but from an online participant. You want to read it out, um, Alex? Okay, I think there are Two questions. No, let's scroll up. Okay, uh, freedom against discrimination is a constitutional right. As Christians, we need to obey the law of the land. Uh, I think that's just a comment. Now, how can we effectively pray for souls and their salvation? 
How can we effectively pray for souls and their salvation? Well, I'll tell you what I found useful. Um, one, you can effectively pray for somebody you don't care for. It is to pray first for God to give you a love and a burden for that person. Paul said, my desire and burden for my people, the Jews, that they will be saved. That burden drove him to pray. Nehemiah heard about the broken walls and the state of the people. It drove him to pray. So the key to prayer is a burden. So first we ask God to give our burden for them. You can't pray beyond your burden. You can never pray beyond your burden. You can only pray as long as your burden. So it's to ask for a burden, it's to ask for the love of God to constrain you. One of the things I wrote in those notes is that motive, one key motive of evangelism must be love. We don't evangelize so as to increase membership. That's not the first motive. That is something down the line. So it's to ask for a burden and pray for them. Pray by name. And like I said, if you know somebody, i give you an example. We had a friend. And we're praying for the father to be saved. And one day I asked God, what I always ask the question, every man has a stronghold. Every woman has a stronghold. So what is this man's stronghold? And the Lord said his connections and his money. He was occupying a very strategic position in an organization. So I asked the daughter, should we pray that your father loses that position? <laughs> <laughs> of course, you can know the answer. God's will be done. But we kept praying, and he lost that position. But as a result, he got saved. I had, I, I, when I was in a Buttermate, I was living in LADP estate. I had two neighbors, young girls. They were the happening girls. Every evening, all kinds of cars, men come and fight over two pretty young ladies. I tried to preach to them. One of them told me the truth is, if I receive this gospel, I won't be able to eat. I say, how? That you know now. If I, you start seeing me with this man now, you start judging me. And they are the one that feed me. I say, okay, God, you know what? From today, I put a wedge between this woman and all those men. God answered. One month, nobody came to see this girl. So she called me one day. He said, Bro, son, I hope you didn't go and pray that God should take away. <laughs> you know, but do you know that as a result of that thing, she got saved. So it's not witchcraft, just pulling down what? Strongholds. Thoughts and what? Imagination that raise their head again, the knowledge of God. I always try to find out what is standing beneath this is my intellectually and knowing God. And I pray it down. I have a friend, in fact, he's the one they want to make PDP chairman now. So when I was preaching to him, you tell me I'm a materialist. I don't believe in spiritual things. I'm a materialist. So I said, okay, you know what I'll do? I'll pray for a wrong spirit called witchcraft to harass you. When the wrong spirit harassed you, you come and look for the right spirit. <laughs> when the wrong spirit started harassing him, he went and joined one cult. But at least you know, understand that life is more than material. 
and we're talking about it. Sometimes you just need to know what is a stronghold, what is the thought, what is the imagination. Amen. I've said that before. Thank you, sir. Um, in the other comments, if we deny a person of the opportunity to be employed because of his faith, that in law will be discrimination. Say Jesus did not practice discrimination. We need wisdom to have the right approach. Okay. Uh, so the question I have a question is said, please can you talk more on baptism by sorrow? Okay. okay. Baptism by suffering, yeah. Yeah, you see, like I said, let me give you an example. When I went to South Africa to start Capro missions, we run into a very strange situation where South Africa just passed a law. If you deny a gay or lesbian or HIV positive a job for any reason, you can be liable to a hefty fine and even a jail sentence. But the kind of work I'm doing in Capro, I don't need a gay, I don't need a lesbian, and I don't need a HIV positive person. So what we simply did was outline the qualification that will make you serve in my kind of organization. And so our church had to do the same thing to ensure that if you're going to remember this church, you have to subscribe to one wife, one woman, male and female. So it became an entry point. So if you want to join my organization, then we don't pay salaries. <laughs> so are you willing to work like that? And then that became, God will only give us wisdom around it. So if you need to preserve the integrity of a witness of an organization, that's why I say it depends on the motive. But if it's just a business organization and the only thing that's making you not want to employ them because you know you don't want Muslims or Hindus in your company, you might be shooting yourself in the foot. That's why I was telling her. But there are some times for the kind of work you are doing, you have to be wise. Um, so discrimination, uh, or no discrimination will depend on what is the objective of the group that you're employing people in. If it's not a public organization, some of those laws don't apply to you. So that's what I would say about that. Baptism of um, suffering. Baptism by suffering. Pardon? Baptism by suffering. Uh -huh. Can you please talk more on that? Uh, it's not me that I talked about it. <laughs> <laughs> It's, and and the last question is, how can we disciple a newcomer in Christ effectively? Uh, baptism or suffering is mentioned in the Bible. Remember one time, two disciples came to Jesus. When you come to your kingdom, put us one on your left, one where? What was the question Jesus asked them? Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? What was that cup? Suffering. So even if you drink it, who stays on my left or right doesn't depend on me, depend on God. But the, the point is, the Bible says, Christ, we're not only called to believe in Christ. Jesus made it clear that the world will hate you when you become a Christian. That not because of you, because they hated him. 
if you're of the world, they will love you. But because you're not of the world. So don't count it strange when that happens. And then historically, you look at the life of people that follow Jesus. There's a teaching that says if you are following Jesus in this world, the world will love you. It's not true. There's a baptism of suffering. It is a baptism, but the Bible says don't suffer because you are a thief, a busybody, or a sinner. You will suffer because you are standing for Christ. Then rejoice because great is your reward in heaven. In Acts 4, when they beat those ones, they said they rejoiced and counted it a privilege that they could suffer with Christ. That's what I mean by the baptism of suffering. When you came into Christ, you didn't only come to enjoy. You also came to carry the cross and to follow him, even if it means death. That is the baptism. How do you follow up a new convert? I've already talked about there are many tools you can use. The tool I use is Hebrews 6, those foundations. And they are basic. You teach them. You are not born again. You repented from sin. You are following Jesus. But they are dead works. I cannot forget. I keep talking about your pastor. You may not even remember. The first night I gave my life to Christ, he told me, he said, he asked me, do you have a girlfriend? I was thinking of one girl. I haven't even talked to her. But I was not sure whether to say yes or no. I say, you, do you drink? Do you, now that you're born, you have to stop those things. So you teach people that. Dead works. Now, dead works may not even be bad works. They are just good things that don't help them grow in Christ. You teach that. Then you teach them faith towards God. Faith is not a, a PhD program for some big pastors. The just shall live by what? Not the missionary, they just. Once you are justified in Christ, you live by trusting God. Even if you are earning $10 million a month, if you are a disciple of Christ, that money is not your own because whoever does not forsake all cannot be his disciple. You stand depending on God for everything. Faith towards God. Then baptism. They need to be baptized by water. Many Pentecostal Christians don't teach baptism anymore. You need baptism of the Holy Spirit. But you also know that when you came into Christ, you bought a fight. The fight against Jesus now become your fight. I lived, when I was in secondary school, I earned a living buying fight. If a teacher harassed you, a prefect, you give me biscuit, I fight for you. So, <laughs> so you buy fight. <laughs> we bought a fight. You understand? Then you teach judgments. Laying of hands, there's another one. A Christian has authority to lay hands on the sick. A Christian has authority to lay hands and bless. It's not just the ordained ministers. Say, this sign shall follow them that believe. In my name, they shall cast out demons. In my name, they will lay hands on the sick. And what will happen? They, who will recover? You don't have power to recover sickness. If I lay hands on you, you don't recover. Go and see a doctor. It's your fault. It's not my fault. My job is to lay hands on you. Whose job is it to recover? Your job. <laughs> so you teach those basic things. So that's what I mean. Then you teach, in fact, Foursquare has a very good program. Then you teach the importance of belonging to church. Spiritual disciplines of prayer, quiet time, uh, you know, witnessing, and then being part of the body of Christ. 
These are all teaching them to observe Matthew 20, all that Jesus has commanded you. And the last command is you to go and reach others for me. So you take them through that. Different churches have different programs, but I start, in fact, where I start is teaching this person to hear God. Where do I start? Teaching this person to do what? Yeah. But if you don't hear God, how do you know when he has answered your prayer? How do you know they are reading the Bible and he's speaking to you if you can't hear him? So for me, the first lesson I teach any new convert is how to hear God. My sheep hear my voice. And they do what? They follow me. And I give them life. And no one can snatch them. Safety growth comes from hearing God. Teaching new convert to discern the voice of God is very key for me. And then those basic foundation and then some of the basic church doctrine that make you part of the body of Christ. That's how I follow up a new convert. I guess that's all from I see online. One more. One more. One more. Okay. Let's take that quickly. Okay. So we have a, two more from on-site. Okay. So it says there's a challenge we are having with the present generation. It's a doctrine that says own your truth, meaning that truth is, is relative and you decide what you want to believe as truth. How do we respond to people who have imbibed this philosophy? Very simple. You respond to them by the word of God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and what? The life. Truth is not just a body of fact, it's a person. Number two, sanctify them by thy truth. Thy word is truth. So I have no respect for people who don't accept, if they are Christian, the authority of the word of God. I can't help you. Now, I can help you see why the word of God is true. But to those who believe, no evidence is necessary. To those who don't, no evidence is enough. Okay. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Two quick questions from, from here, and then we round off this segment. In some organizations, you are not allowed to preach or talk about your faith. Expression of your faith might be seen as an abuse or putting pressure on a, on a colleague. If you find yourself in such an organization, what do you do? You don't preach or you leave. <laughs> uh, but let me explain. You see, I think it works if you are in an official setting. But if I mean, let me give you an example. I'm going to know a group called World Vision. World Vision began as a Christian group to supplement the work of missionaries. While missionaries are preaching, they do development. Over time, because of funding, they got monies from people who don't want anybody to preach. So you have Christians in World Vision. They are not allowed to preach. Now, but they are not allowed to preach when they are on official duty. But I come from office, I'm living in VGC, and my neighbor is not a World Vision person. He's not a client of World Vision. Nothing say I cannot go and talk to him. So you understand what I'm saying? So if in the course of official work, I'm using my official office as a platform to preach, is what they don't like. But if I'm outside my official, I'm traveling, I'm in a plane, and I meet somebody, how can you say I shouldn't preach? Okay, the last one. A Christian organization employed a lady who was not born again. 
After a few years of working in the organization, she became pregnant without being married. The organization decided to be silent about her pregnancy, but she sued the organization for discriminating against her as unmarried mother-to-be. Perhaps they didn't allow her to go on maternity leave or something. So in that situation, what do you do? It may not be directly related to... That's a labor relation issue. <laughs> I'm not a labor lawyer. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> okay, I think that's where we we end this segment of uh, Q&A. Um, thank you so much, um, Brother Samputu, and thanks to all of you that um, asked uh, questions and those that listened attentively as well. The next item we have, which we're going to do in about five minutes, it's where do we go from here? Next step, an action plan. And this is for all of us to put our heads together. We have heard a lot. We have received, um, I would say, sufficient nuggets to move us to the next level. What is that next level? Or what is the plan for going to that next level? And I. I put out this question to all of us. One of them could be, you know, be intentional in being active. Many of us live in gated estates. For example, VGC Pura had their uh, biannual meeting today. I think for the first time I attended, even though I didn't speak. But you can become intentional in being active in such associations with the right motive and those motives or that motive is one of the things we have shared or one of the thing we have shared today not one of the things so what are the other action plans that we can, can take four minutes remaining i need response um Dickin, dominic wale can you capture some of those points please and somebody at the back was raising her hand after Dick and Dominic, I'll come to you. I, I think that, um, I mean, the point of the motive in association, I think we need to clarify. If I want to get involved, it's important that VGC runs well. Whether or not it's a Christian, uh, whether or not the people become Christians. So let's not think that we only get involved so that we preach. No. I think that would be, that motive would become easily suspect. Because if I am not one, I'm thinking, okay, so we are a project for you. I think we should know that it's important to serve. If we are in a position, if we are able to get even into the leadership or the executive or whatever and serve, serve well, that is a witness. But I also, th I think that in terms of action point, I mean, and what I'm, this is what I'm thinking for myself as well. So, like some of us who live in, whatever it's, whether it's gated estate or not, you have neighbors. So those of us who have not started identifying who don't know who our neighbors are. It's as simple as you start trying to find out who lives here, who lives here, who lives here. Just like he said, you start mapping, start praying, start specific, you know, and finding out. 
if, if necessary, visit, you know. And luckily, they are doing, those who live in VGC, for instance, they are doing, um, they have now neighborhood rep, you know. And they, they, they can, you can even encourage a get together. You know, somebody else has invited us in our own neighborhood to have a small, even with the COVID, we all gathered there. And we, they, they suggested that we, everybody should bring some finger food. And we, different people brought. And it opened our eyes to see a number of people we didn't see before. The question I was asking myself is, so, so what are you doing? How are you progressing the relationships that we are beginning to have in that neighborhood. So I, I think that's one thing we can do. Okay. Join with intention to serve, know your neighbor, KYC. And of course, during the House Fellowship Week, we did talk about that. And we also talked about care, connect, and what? We've forgotten the three Cs. Yeah. Connect and, and commit. Care, connect, and commit. I think it's, it ties up with what um, Bikini Chaba had just said. Somebody was raising her hand behind. Uh, have you changed your mind? Any more suggestion? Just maybe one more minute and then we, we round off. Any anyone online? Okay, if we don't have any more. Okay, we'll go to the last item. Um, Reverend Peter has just stepped out. Pastor Rotimi, please just come close us in prayer. So once again, thank you so much for being part of this program, both online and off-site off um, people. God bless you, Pastor Roti. Praise the Lord. Shall we pray? Father, we want to thank you for the opportunity you've given to us again to learn, to be informed, to be educated, to be challenged and inspired, to do that which is at the very core and the center of your heart. The Bible says we should be doers of the word and not just hearers only, lest we deceive ourselves. Father, we ask for grace to back up the things we have learned with relevant action, with a sense of urgency and intentionality. Lord, we receive this grace. As we step out of this all tonight, Father, we ask for help. Let your name be glorified. Bless the speaker. Increase him on every side. Bless every one of us and our families. May our lives never remain the same. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Can we share the grace in fellowship? May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the sweet fellowship of the Holy Spirit rest and abide with us now and forevermore. Amen. Surely, God's goodness and mercy shall follow us all the days of our lives, and we shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever and ever. Enjoy your evening and see you tomorrow.